0: But well, I can tell you that when you're at a bank and you get a phone call from the Fed at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon and they want you to come to the Fed, <laughs> it's generally not a good sign. Wow. <laughs> so the next uh, kind of, you know, three, four or five months as we worked through this, the stock ended up responding very nicely uh, to it and did well because they had the courage, you know, to do something that was really quite you know significant. I mean, this is a big company where there was significant change uh, required and, and I think very difficult.
1: The Business Transformed podcast was created to address the challenges, the fear, and the uncertainty of leaders who face an incredible degree of change in their businesses. Social, economic, regulatory, and market changes, influenced and underpinned by an increasing pace of technology adoption, are changing both the process and time allowed for making decisions, gathering information, going to market, hiring, collaborating and structuring a workforce and workplace. To keep their companies in the winner's column, leaders today need to understand how their most successful peers approach, prioritize, influence, and manage change. The Business Transformed podcast is where you can find those stories. Let's jump in. Well, today's guest is Gary Crittenden. He requires no introduction for many, but for those of you who are not familiar with Gary's career... He's currently an executive director of HGGC, which is a middle market private equity firm. He serves on the board of two of the portfolio companies of the firm, i and Pearl Holding Group. And then outside of HGGC, he also serves on the boards of Pluralsight, Primerica, and Zions Bancorp, and has previously served on the boards of Staples, Ryerson Tull, and the TJX companies. Before HGGC, Gary held several chief financial officer positions, including Citigroup from 2007 to 2009, where he was responsible for the financial management of the firm during the financial crisis we're all so familiar with. And he was also the CFO of American Express Company from 2000 to 2007. Before that, he was the CFO of Monsanto, Sears Roebuck and Company, Melville Corporation, which was the parent company of CVS, and Filene's Basement. On three separate occasions, the readers of Institutional Investor magazine named Gary one of the best CFOs in America. He spent his first 12 years in his career at Bain & Company, an international management consulting firm, where he became a partner. He began his work there at Boston and then co-founded the Munich, Germany office, where he worked for five years. He eventually headed the firm's retail practice area. He graduated from the great university here in Utah, Brigham Young University, and has an MBA from the Harvard Business School, and also has an honorary doctorate degree from Weber State University in recognition of his service in business and the community. And on a personal note, I really enjoyed speaking with Gary because of the gracious nature of his personality and the way he carries his deep experience and competence with uh, a really engaging humility. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Let's jump in. Gary, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. I'm really excited to learn from your experiences, and and hear about some of the things that you've learned as you've led change at organizations. You bet, Andrew. I'm absolutely delighted to have the opportunity to do it. Thanks very much for asking me. So, Gary, you've had a long and varied career that has involved the transformation of some significant businesses. I'm wondering if for our listeners, you could give a quick rundown of the more significant transformations where you've been in senior management.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to, Andrew, and thanks very much for uh, taking this time with me uh, today. Um, I have had a chance to be around a lot of pretty significant changes, you might say. And so maybe I'll just list them off kind of quickly, and uh, then if it makes sense, we could talk about it a little bit more in detail.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh,
0: probably the biggest one earlier in my career uh, was the breakup of the company, which is now CVS, the drugstore chain that you're aware of. Uh, Mm -hmm. into its component parts. I can explain that a little bit in a while, but it was, CBS was part of a broad based retail company that included Marshall's and six or seven other retailers that you'd all be familiar with. And I was there at the time that that company was broken up and I can provide a little backdrop uh, on that. At another point in my career, I I had just joined Monsanto, uh, just uh, days after a merger at Monsanto was announced with American Home Products. And uh, that merger with American Home Products fell apart about uh, five weeks later, which created some interesting balance sheet channels for ch- challenges for Monsanto that I'd be happy to, to talk about. Okay. Uh, eventually, I uh, was at American Express. I was the chief financial officer at American Express, as I was at the parent company of CBS and uh, in Monsanto. And uh, American Express, of course, uh, was uh, sadly in the gun sites at the time of the uh, the terrorist attacks on 9/11, and uh, that presented a whole series of challenges and changes for the company that that I think you know certainly taught me some lessons that may be helpful to talk about. Eventually, the changes that we made at American Express led to the spinoff of a significant portion of American Express. Uh, into a company that we called uh, and that people would know as Ameriprise. So Ameriprise used to be part of American Express. We spun that off and created a different profile for the company. Okay. Uh, In terms of CFO, uh, my last significant role was at uh, Citigroup, where I was the chief financial officer. When I joined the company, it was months before the start of the financial crisis. So Maybe that tells you something about the advice that I'll give you today, but anyway, it was months before the financial crisis and obviously Citigroup was right at the core of what happened there and uh, there were some significant changes which came about as a result of that. Yeah. And then a couple of, uh, so So, I, when I left Citigroup, I ended up joining with some longtime friends of mine, Bob Gay, who many people know as a longtime uh, partner at Bain Capital, uh, Steve Young, the NFL quarterback, and and a couple of others. Uh, in a private equity firm called HGGC. And Bob Gay accepted a voluntarily accepted a not-for-profit responsibility that caused him to leave about two years into our first fund. And I became the chief executive officer there. And as you might guess, that made for some interesting times for us.
1: I could imagine.
0: Yeah. And then finally, I spent the last three years uh, as the volunteer head of the missionary department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. People would know the church as the church that has these happy, smiling uh, missionaries with the white shirts and the black badges on their shirts. And I had the fortunate opportunity to be there for about three years. And we worked on an important transition from missionaries kind of walking on the streets and going door to door to talk about their message to the use of social media. And uh, again, there's some good lessons to be learned from that. So that's kind of the list. We certainly pick and choose among the things that are there, but uh, that's sort of the list.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a fascinating list. I think each one of those has probably scores of lessons about leading change and and responding to change that we could learn from and uh, probably way more than we have time to talk about today. So I think maybe we should talk about each of those in the order that you think is relevant because these are your experiences But it might be helpful if you could talk a little bit about what caused the change in each of these circumstances and and how you were either leading or responding to that change. That sounds terrific.
0: Yeah. So I'd be happy to do that. Maybe one way to think about this is uh, you can sort of divide these experiences into a couple of different buckets. So one bucket are things that uh, where the company was sort of forced to make a change. So In the wake of 9-11, American Express didn't have any choice but to make a change. Uh, In the wake of what happened in the financial crisis, Citigroup had no choice but to make a change. Uh, Whereas, you know, in the case of the breakup of the parent company of CVS and the spinoff of Ameriprise, uh, those were activities that were undertaken to improve the situation of the company, to respond to how we could create better shareholder value, provide better opportunity for employees, that sort of thing. And so maybe maybe we think about that a little bit in those two buckets, because I think at least for me, the lessons that I've learned, the things I take away
1: really are different in those two buckets. How does that sound to you, Andrew? I think that's a really relevant breakdown, Gary, because everybody's dealing with change today that was imposed upon them. By the pandemic, if nothing else, right? I mean, that's just that's the major cause of change that people are dealing with today. And yet it's not the only one by far. As a matter of fact, people are many companies are looking at, you know, the year before the pandemic when things were good and saying, why didn't I invest more in change? And as I respond to this pandemic and the changes that it's brought to my marketplace and to my company and to the way our customers do business. I'm thinking about responding, and I'm also thinking about how do I prepare for the future and get ahead of this? And so I I think that's a wonderful way of looking at this. So maybe, why
0: don't we start with the end a little bit there, maybe talk a little bit about Citigroup. Um, So as I said, I joined Citigroup, I I think my first day was the 27th of February of 2007, and uh, Citigroup had had a very profitable quarter measured in the single billions of dollars, and if you look at the kind of three or four years prior to my arrival, they, the company had, had earnings growth of about, I think, on average, about 10% a year in terms of EPS growth. Okay, And yet the stock price had not done well. The stock price had really languished and uh, had not done very well. Hmm. And uh, so I was hired uh, to try and change that trajectory. And so we uh, and the rest of the finance team were happily on a mission to try and do that, understanding- you know economic value added and the kinds of things that are important in the financial services industry. And uh, during the course of the summer of two thousand and seven, the first signs that there were were significant issues in the housing market in the United States began to show up. And we had some of that. You know we had uh, obviously a mortgage business there, and we also had a very significant position in uh, what were called CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, which were essentially structured instruments that were a roll-up of a lot of underlying uh, mortgages. Yeah. And, uh, and we saw, you know, in the mortgage business and in, in some of the lower rated structured investments that we had, some weakness over the course of the summer. And uh, that weakness started to grow more pronounced uh, until we got sort of into October And by the time we got into October, it was clear that it was going to be a significant issue for us. Long story short, within a relatively short period of time, City was under enormous pressure to try and raise capital. Over the course of the next year, year and a half or so, we raised, I I believe, $98 billion in capital. And we sold some, as I recall, 25 or 26 separate businesses. Uh, We uh, unfortunately had to let about 75,000 employees go. It was a very significant time of change for the company. And and I think uh, many of the hallmarks of change in a circumstance where you're really under pressure to make change are kind of evident in that. Uh, So uh, it had to happen quickly. You know, it's not like we could take a long time uh, to make decisions. Obviously, the regulators were very concerned with what the situation was. And uh, so we had to act quickly. There was obviously a burning platform. It wasn't hard to get employees in the organization to uh, focus on the change that needed to happen, hmm. but, but it also required us to have a plan. So, you know what I mean? You can't just say, okay, we're going to change. What right. are we going to do to change? You know, we these are businesses we've had for a long time and employees that have engaged in running these businesses. And uh, yeah. so it put, put significant pressure on us obviously to make those uh, changes. Fortunately, because of the fundraising that we were able to do the uh, and the support of the US government as you recall the TARP program and and uh, other asset protection programs that the federal government put in place uh, we were able to uh, the company was able to survive and uh, you know made it safely through those years uh, of the financial crisis so that kind of thing is usually true uh, in a situation where you're responding to you know something that is is a kind of a a, a very significant challenge for the company so uh, maybe just a couple of minutes on Monsanto, if if that would be helpful. As I said, I just joined Monsanto just days after the merger with American Home Products was announced, and it was an interesting transaction in the sense that uh, that uh, the company was going to have co CEOs. So Bob Shapiro, the CEO from Monsanto, and Jack Spafford, the CEO of American Home Products, were going to continue on after the merger as co CEOs, and. Uh, Uh, I knew Bob well. I'd met him obviously during the recruiting process and I had confidence that Bob could manage through that somewhat challenging organizational structure, but it ended up not working. And uh, so literally a few weeks into my tenure at Monsanto, uh, it was announced that uh, that merger was not going to happen. Now, normally, Andrew, you wouldn't have thought that would have been a big deal. (laughs) Yes. Because Monsanto could go on. Yeah. The problem is, in anticipation of the merger, the company had done several large acquisitions and had funded those with debt. And in the combination, American Home Products was, building, it was bringing enough equity that our debt-to-equity ratio made sense. Uh, but without American Home, we were way over-levered. And, okay. uh, and so we quickly had to kind of recalibrate our
1: strategy. That's really interesting. So both of these so far are cases of you use the term burning platform where you just have to react yeah. fast. You didn't have much time in either of these cases. I remember when I when the financial crisis of 2007 hit, there was very little warning. One of the clients of the company I worked for was American Home Mortgage. We I think we did some work. I was at a small company, but we did some work for one of their smaller yeah. divisions. And uh they were gung ho with us. And all of a sudden they stopped and they wouldn't respond to our messages. And then we started seeing the news. So I couldn't imagine what it was like as a leader at a company where, you know, you were going to be right in the crosshairs of all of these challenges, how you, how you wake up one morning thinking everything is okay. And then by the end of the day, it's like, nothing is okay.
0: Yeah. It might be worthwhile just to share a little story uh, with you that really underlines that from the financial crisis. So, um, Uh, one afternoon, Friday afternoon. So by now, Vikram Pandit had become the uh, CEO of Citigroup. So Chuck Prince had resigned. Vikram was the new CEO. Vikram, uh, I had gotten to know the prior year. Uh, He ran the alternatives business at Citigroup. And uh, he called me into his office. It was about three o'clock. And he said, you know, I just got a phone call from the Fed. And they would like us to come down for a meeting this afternoon. Well, I can tell you that when you're at a bank, and you get a phone call from the Fed at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and they want you to come to the Fed. <laughs> it's generally not a good sign. wow. <laughs> so anyway, and they told us they told us to go in the back door so that nobody would see us. And, oh my goodness! Uh, so long story short, we got in the car, we drove down there, we did go to the back door, we went into a, a meeting. Uh, in the meeting, uh, eventually, so we we sat in a room for like three hours and nobody was there, just looking at each other. And then eventually we were ushered into a larger room where it became clear that two senior executives from each of 10 of the 11 major financial firms in the United States were there. Wow. And noticeably missing was the CEO of Lehman Brothers and the uh, CFO of Lehman Brothers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, then within a few minutes after getting in the larger room, in came Chris Cox, who was the head of the SEC. Hank Paulson, who was the treasury secretary and Tim Geithner, who was the head of the New York Fed. And uh, the story obviously was that Lehman Brothers was about to go into bankruptcy. And uh, Hank Paulson told us that if it were to be saved, it would have to be done by the companies in the room. And again, to kind of shorten what is a long story, after much discussion, obviously the decision was made not to fund Lehman Brothers and, uh, and to let Lehman Brothers go into bankruptcy. I believed at the time. So at that moment that the impact on markets would be catastrophic, um, it was about two o'clock at morning. So we stayed there that night and the next day and the next night. So wow. kind of all day long for about 48 hours. And, uh, and after we finished and had made a decision not to go ahead, I can remember it was raining and I was walking, uh, near wall street and, uh, to, to catch a cab, we were, we lived up in the Columbus circle area. And, uh, And I thought, you know, the people that are walking on the street here have no idea what has just happened and how bad this is going to be.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, so a day later, we had a we had a board meeting in Paris. So we had flown over for the board meeting. I told the board uh, that I was shocked that here we had gone two days and the markets had been relatively stable and uh, that maybe I was wrong about what would happen. We were then on a plane that night flying back. And by the time the plane landed, it was clear that the markets were in absolute meltdown and it was virtually impossible to raise funds to support you know, overnight borrowing. And so you know, these, these crises happened so quickly, as you rightly stated in your example there, and were so significant that the firm just had to make the changes that were needed. And obviously the, the real key challenge was to know what to do in that short a time period to yeah. make sure you're in a spot where the where the company can actually uh, survive. So yeah, that's sort of examples of, you know, major change that, uh, that uh, in, involved where you didn't have much choice. Um, let me talk about a couple of others that are kind of much more pleasant to talk about. And that is where, hey, you know, that. you're trying to make a change. For the better, so let's talk about CVS. So everybody knows CVS. Uh, They won't know the name of the then parent company of CVS, which was called Melville Corporation. Okay. Uh, Early in my career at Bain, I I had spent a lot of time in retailing, and uh, I ended up leaving Bain after being there for twelve years to join as a CFO of Melville Corporation. And uh, Melville owned CVS and, as I said, Marshalls, Linens and Things, Wilson's Leather tom mccann shoes foot action the athletic shoe company
1: okay i know foot action
0: do you know foot action yeah i do <laughs> so, I do so that's shoes good. There. and and most people will know uh marshall's obviously yeah and uh anyway the company the company hadn't really uh, it, was, it was okay sort of uh it was a big company obviously and was doing okay but the stock market the stock price had really languished for quite a while and uh so again, I was hired uh, to sort of support the management as they took a good look at why why that was the case. And uh, so as you talk to people in the leadership, they would say, you know, uh, mo- most of the leaders, by the way, came from CVS. So in fact, the actual founder of CVS, Stan Goldstein, was my boss, the guy who actually opened the first store and <laughs> put the first products on the shelf. Oh, wow. Was my boss. Wonderful wow. guy. Yeah, isn't that something? That's amazing. So, Stan and and then and the chief operating officer, or president, was a guy named uh, Harvey Rosenthal, and uh, Harvey had spent his career also at CVS, the CEO. Really had a great understanding, obviously, of that business, and had built a, a fantastic company. But in these more fashion-oriented businesses, like linens and things, and Marshalls, uh, and you know, even Foot Action, they just hadn't had the life experience, you know, that where they could add value to these companies. So, with the passage of time, so over the next year or so, it became increasingly clear that we could really reward our shareholders for their patience if we were able to split the company into parts that made sense on their own. And uh, and so, as you might guess, this was quite a Quite a thing. So right. we were going to keep CVS as the parent company, which it stayed, but sell Marshalls and uh, go public with Linens and Things, okay, and go public with Wilson's Leather, and uh, you know each of these businesses had sort of a different outcome yeah. uh, associated with it. And over the next year or so, that's sort of what we engaged in was the uh, was the the sale or spinoff or of, of each of these different enterprises. And uh, of course, when we first announced it. It's always a shock. So, the day that we're recording this, for example, uh, the merger—the day here today that you and I, Andrew, were talking—the merger between Warner Media and Discovery was announced. Which uh, sounds like a very sensible transaction to me. So, uh, AT and T is going to spin off Warner Media. They're going to merge with uh, Discovery. It's going to create a very competitive, great company. Uh, AT and T shareholders are going to own seventy percent of the new combined company. Yeah. Uh, and so it it sounds like a great idea but at least as I looked at the screen before we started here uh discovery was down 9% and, uh, <laughs> uh, and that's sort of what happened to us at uh, at CVS at the pair to CVS it was that we announced it we thought it was going to be fantastic everybody's going to love us yeah and the stock dropped.
1: Uh, you just
0: never know how people are going to react right? Exactly. You can't you can't count on it. But fortunately over the course of the next uh, kind of you know three, four or five months as we worked through this, the stock ended up responding very nicely uh, to it and did well. And I think as a credit to the vision that uh, Stan Goldstein had, that Harvey Rosenthal had, that the outstanding members of the board had uh, that were there at that time because they had the courage you know to do something, that was really quite, you know, significant. I mean, this is a big company where there was significant change uh, required, and, and I think very difficult.
1: Well, thank you for listening to the Business Transformed podcast today. This is episode one of two covering my interview with Gary Crittenden. Tune into episode two next time to hear what Gary's experience has taught him about where power should reside in an organization. Should you be centralized or decentralized? And also, how to manage innovation at a company where the business is already successful and only part of the business sees the need for change. We'll see you there.